is an Odyssey original. This is K-Nikes in Depth. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Elsa Ramon in for Charles Feldman. Hollywood is on edge. Time is starting to run out to prevent a writer's strike. We go in depth. What if your doctor, with the help of something that might scare you, predict when you'll have a heart attack? It might be coming. Stretch limousines could become a thing of the past. We'll explain. But we are going to start with the possible Hollywood writer's strike. Matt Bellani, uh, Bellani is founder of Puck News. And Matt, thanks for joining us. I wanted to uh, just check with you to see if the main sticking point that we've been hearing about for the last couple of weeks that have been reported by multiple media outlets is the big issue here are the residuals and data transparency from streamers. Is this still the case? And what are some of the other big points of contention right now that could take the WGA members into strike mode this morning at 12.01. I think that's right. I think the residuals is a big issue. I think minimums also, the minimum amount of money that that these writers can make per episode, that's also on the table. But this is a larger philosophical question. The writers feel that the streaming revolution really has left them behind and that the formulas that were once used to calculate what percentage the writers get are simply out of date. There's fewer episodes of shows. There's shorter seasons and fewer seasons of shows. And the calculations just are not catching up to the reality of the business. So if they don't make a deal by tonight, does the strike immediately begin tomorrow or does it take them a day or two to prepare? Well, the the deal expires at 1201. And the writers can choose to strike immediately. They could, if they are making progress on a deal, they could extend it and do a, you know, a week or two weeks or a few days to see if they can make a deal. Sometimes they do that in good faith. They can also call for a strike immediately, or they can say what they've done, which is that we're going to have a big meeting on Wednesday and decide how this is going to play out. So we could see picketing as early as tomorrow, but it will probably start on Wednesday. So uh, the the WGA has already pointed out on their website that they are going to announce strike locations or picketing locations for its members. So what happens if it does strike and some of the members don't abide by the strike rules? Well, those are called scabs, and there are disciplinary procedures for writers that are not adhering to a work stoppage. Um, We did see some of that occur in the last strike in 2007-2008. It's very difficult, as you might imagine, to police that if people are at home writing on their free time based on assignments that were given to them pre-strike. It's hard to police it. It's much easier to police if you are taking a meeting or out there selling something or doing something publicly. And I think most writers are smart enough to not do that, but we'll see. All right, uh, last question uh, very quickly. The first shows that will be hit if the strike happens. Uh, I'm a fan of uh, Colbert, so I imagine Colbert, Kimmel, Seth Meyers, Daily Show, all those shows are immediately out uh, of action, right? Yeah, the hosts of those shows had a meeting with the Writers Guild, actually several meetings, where they they all determined that they're not going to do their shows if the writers are on strike. Um, They could have, you know, they could have gone forward and just not use writers. And in fact, in the late days of the 2008 strike, the shows did return 
to keep their crews working, but without writers. And they were, they were literally sitting at their desk just chatting with the audience because they didn't have professional writers. That's not going to happen at the, at, at the first instance here. Um, but we'll see how this drags on and whether the, you know, when the pain gets really tough for these writers uh, and these shows, maybe they do come back without writers. All right. Thanks so much, uh, Matt Bellany with uh, Puck News. And Matt, my apologies if I mispronounced your last name. Bellany, Rob's a much better person than I am. You... <laughs> I am a horrible human being. That, that remains to be seen. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. Right now, one of the pioneers of artificial intelligence was recently interviewed by the New York Times, and he warned tech companies are racing toward danger to create products based on AI and that bad actors are going to take advantage of this technology. But is he right? David Arbach is a tech writer and software engineer, and he previously worked at Google and Microsoft that are implementing this technology right now. And, David, I got to say, it always seems with new technology comes great advancements in a lot of sectors, the healthcare industry, education, et cetera. We've witnessed monumental good and bad that comes with these kinds of advancements. So are you saying the benefits of AI don't outweigh the risks here? Well, it's really, thanks for having me, by the way. It's really hard to put them on a scale and say one's uh, the, the, the good stuff and the bad stuff, uh, that there's one way to, you know, to make up your mind. And ultimately, we may not be able to make that call except in retrospect. If it ends up destroying the world, obviously it wasn't worth it. But, you know, <laughs> what Jeffrey Hinton said today wasn't on that level. He was more saying that, look, we've got to slow down and examine this technology and see how it's going to examine the world, not because it's going to take over the world. Uh, you know, we're not going to create a Skynet, but because it could wind up eliminating a lot of human labor and and really sending shockwaves through the economy and that the potential for disinformation for deep fakes for video that looks as convincing as real life that's completely manufactured is becoming increasingly great year by year i thought and uh, those sorts of uh, go ahead yeah those sorts of dangers are very real and i think and hinton who let it be said, is a legend in the field and one of the most influential and and visionary AI thinkers really in, in, in the history of computing. Uh, you know, what he says is really worth paying attention to. Yeah, so, I, yeah. I read that article and I, I think that uh, he has some valid uh, concerns about it. My concern about the fear of AI, that is, it's fear based uh, for a lot of people on the unknown, on the unknown. Uh, it's a technology they're not familiar with yet, uh, so they're afraid of it because they don't know what it could be used for. And that's the real danger. And the danger is not, as you point out, that it's going to become sentient and take over the world. I think that's that's the stuff of science fiction movies. But there is a danger in that it, it's going to wipe out a lot of human jobs. Already we've seen some uh, – there are some uh, news websites that I have been hearing about are basing a lot of their articles just on stuff written by chat GPT or, or a form of that technology. And that's the that's real right. concern here. Yeah, that's exactly it, that we're going to have content creation that is convincingly human. It's not going to be done by machines that can actually think, but it's going to be able to convince people that it thinks. It's going to be able to convince people that it's human. And you're going to have, you know, chatbot companions that do a good enough job for people who really want to believe that they're human. If you're willing to overlook it, you're not going to mind if it acts in bizarre ways sometimes because if it gives you companionship and love, well, 
that's going to be a really powerful emotional uh, emotional influence out there. But some things are already being recreated right now. I see stories every day about how AI can mimic the voice of professional singers and create songs using the voice of, uh, say, Kanye West or something like that, which I think is or actually— Or Nat King Cole. Or Nat you know, King Cole. Can, I mean, you know— you resurrect dead people. Sure. Uh, yeah. It's also being used in bad ways. Uh, we've also seen stories of people's images being used in— uh, pornography situations created with AI. I, I mean, but is it safe to say that whenever we have a burgeoning technology like this, there's always going to be a bad actor or bad situations created like this? People were afraid when the Internet came around about the Internet taking jobs and, you know, the same concerns with AI. So yeah. is it a matter of, of policing this kind of stuff? And if so, is that really the issue here? Is there just not a, a structure in place to be able to police this kind of stuff? So that's the that's the that you really put your finger on it because you know I wrote a book recently called Meganets. And what I talk about is that the problem with these systems is that they're becoming so powerful and ubiquitous, and the cost of running them is dropping by the year, dropping rapidly. So it's not like cloning where you actually can police it because you've actually got, you know, the the physical equipment that, that you need to get a hold of. But the technology to do these things is going to become very, very accessible. And policing it is going to get really tricky unless you're trying to stamp out very, very narrow subset. So what we're facing is a tool sort of like the automobile or like the steam engine or like electricity that is going to be in the hands of most people. And we're going to have to figure out how to shape society so that it doesn't cause too much damage and that we can get the best good out of it because indeed it can do a great amount of good. All right. Thanks so much, uh, David Arbach, tech writer and software engineer, joining us on In-Depth today. Coming up, local doctors are working on this cool new tool that can help predict a major medical condition. Right now, though, uh, you're going to notice even more J.P. Morgan Chase banks around Southern California because that company just took control of First Republic Bank after it failed. David Accomazzo is an instructor of finance at Pepperdine's Graziato Business School. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having me. So right off the bat, before we get into the weeds on this, uh, what does it mean to someone like me who is a who might be a customer of Chase Bank? Will we notice anything that Chase has taken on some more assets and some more debts, et cetera? Yes, it's actually it, it doesn't really change anything uh, in, in, in that respect. If anything, probably this acquisition, which uh, is happening on some pretty good terms for, for J.P. Morgan, might even add about probably about $500 million for next year in that income. Uh, so in terms of uh, uh, the stability of J.P. Morgan, they're not taking on bad assets. It, it will not have any negative consequences for the existing depositors at the, at the Morgan. So the the concern as a consumer from a consumer standpoint is that, you know, First Republic Bank just had unfathomable amounts of assets and total deposits that are now going to go to J.P. Morgan. And and banks like J.P. Morgan are gobbling up some of these midsize and smaller banks. At what point should there be a concern that some of these banks get labeled too big to fail and they actually fail? Because these this would have a global impact uh, basically on the economy everywhere. Right. Well, I mean, we've been struggling with a too big to fail uh, uh, sort of uh, issue for, for many years, but I think it's uh, it's uh, unavoidable. 
that's where the uh, the whole banking sector is going and uh, uh we're actually when you when you look at it from a global perspective what it what is happening in the united states which is realigning ourselves with the way that banking is uh, sort of organized and done in in the rest of the world here in the united states we have a very fragmented banking system we have thousands of banks and the top 10 banks in the country they manage uh, you know roughly about you know 50% of the assets if you look abroad, there's a considerably lower amount of banks per country, and the top, you know, five banks normally manage the majority of the assets. So it's a picture. The fact that we're so fragmented that we have this peculiar sort of number of small banks, it's 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 sort of it's an American sort of characteristics that which you know it 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 had perhaps some reason to exist in the past. Uh, but in in a globalized sort of uh, uh, financial system, it is a trend that I think it's unstoppable. Now, um, when we saw bank failures in 2008, uh, the Bush administration uh, told us that, uh, don't worry, uh, the fundamentals of the economy are strong. I think that was the quote. Uh, but then, of course, that led to other failures and uh, things started falling like dominoes and we ran into the Great Recession. Now, this time you've got these banks failing and the Biden administration is assuring us that uh, don't worry, it's it's all fine. This is not like 2008. But the fact of the matter is three of the four biggest bank failures have happened since March. So is there a bigger issue here that there may be being a little bit too pie in the sky about? Well, you're right. It's always a little bit hard to trust the politicians. I get that. Uh, but I, I do believe that this time the situation is extremely different than it was in 2008. In 2008, uh, it, it, you know, and I could keep it here for, forever to talk about that crisis. Obviously, that's not what you want. But the, the true issue was that there were truly toxic assets sitting on the balance sheets of the banks. This time it's very different when it's happening. It's it's truly just a reflection of a dramatic change in interest rates, which has created issues for banks like Silicon Valley Bank and, of course, First Republic, which had a very, very unique and very concentrated business model. Um, and, uh, and unfortunately, they were not, uh, uh, I guess, quick enough, smart enough, whatever whatever point of view you may want to have on this one, to manage the risk. Look, when... When you train to become a banker, they teach you three things, asset management, liabilities management, and interest rate management. And unfortunately, these banks, uh, uh, First Republic, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, they, they, they failed in actually implementing some really basic uh, liability and interest rate management and asset management uh, uh, sort of review. And I think that's a very specific uh, problem to these banks. Of course, once you start around the bank, because the whole banking system is is fractional and it's based on trust, then everyone looks around and uh, and uh, you know you, you sort of shoot first and you ask questions later. But I do believe that the, uh, the sort of the concerted effort of the FDIC um, and and other institutions, I believe they definitely have stamped the problem. We might see in in the next few weeks, perhaps the next few months. Some additional uh, um, sort of peripheral um, bankruptcies of very small banks and non-systemic banks, but I do believe that at the systemic level, uh, we're nowhere near the situation that we were in 2008. All right, thank you so much, David Ancamazzo, uh, instructor of finance at Pepperdine's Graziato Business School. 
Coming up in just a few minutes on KNX In-Depth, what if AI could predict if and when you will have a heart attack? If it sounds like fiction, it is not. We'll explain. You are listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Elsa Ramon in for Charles Feldman today. All right. Imagine it's the future. 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 Okay. <laughs> and your doctor comes in your room and he looks at his watch and he says, you are going to have a heart attack in soon. In soon. Yes. First of all, you'd be glad you were there. Uh, and the doctor's able to do this because of artificial intelligence developed at Cedars-Sinai that can kind of chat with your doctor about what may happen to you. Piotr Slomka is Director of Innovation in Imaging at Cedar sinai to talk to us about this tool that is being created there. And Piotr, how, first of all, would this AI tool work to be able to predict this kind of health emergency? Yes, thank you. Uh, so our team at, of investigator, investigators at Cedars-Sinai has developed this novel deep learning artificial intelligence uh, tool, which moves us one step closer to predict like, if or when a patient might experience heart attack or another heart-related heart problem, such as urgent heart surgery, for example. So, so why, why is this uh, AI better than, say, uh, a good doctor and she looks up the information on a computer if she doesn't have the facts at her disposal and the computer just can spit back the information? Why does it have to be AI? What makes AI better at this? Yes, thank you. So, you know, we have a lot of uh, data there and no matter how, how good the physician is to, to, to in their minds to kind of put together, integrate mentally all this multiple variables and also images because we actually take images of the heart and we put it into the algorithm directly. So the doctor will have to understand the images, quickly look at different types of images and also clinical information, put it all together very quickly to, and then provide a graph of that chance of this adverse events over time. It's a little difficult for a person to do that. So, okay, you're talking about data. When you say data and the AI tool being trained to collect that data and put it into graphs, you're talking about like uh, the patient's age, gender, weight, heart rate, blood pressure, et cetera, and, uh, that allows the AI to be able to create this algorithm and predict uh, your chances and probability of a heart attack. Is is that correct? Is that how specifically it works? It, it, it's, it's likely exactly how it works. We also add images to that mix of data, actual heart images. So all the information you, you described plus images. And we not only give a chance, but we give a graph like over years, say over six months, one year, five years. And to, so the patient can see like a chart, you know, how that risk changes over time. So how far are we from as AI like this gets used, and this is a good use for AI, that it becomes more and more advanced and eventually you've got the AI program there in the room with the doctor and the patient and the patient can speak to the AI. Right. So the patient could actually see this graph together with the doctor and moreover, they could adjust it and see what happens if they change, for example, medication, they change, the, they lower their blood pressure, what would happen to their risk. Um, in terms of how fast we could have it, we plan to have clinical trials of that at Cedars-Sinai and, and see how that goes and uh, we'll, we'll, go, we'll see then. Sure. If the clinical trials are successful, can this tool and will this tool be used to predict and warn about other health emergencies for patients, blood pressure problems, stroke, any other kind of things that would require, you know, that advanced knowledge would give them the benefit and more chances of surviving something like that. 
We sincerely hope so. And uh, we will work with professional cardiology societies to see how that can be used more widely and what are the, the ways to, to, to have that available more widely. And very quickly, uh, I'm sure at this point we're, we're where if AI says something and the doctor uh, just disagrees with it. So the doctors uh, say has the final say. But will we come to a point when an AI and a human doctor will disagree? Who will make the decision as to which is the more reasonable course of action, especially given insurance issues and, and hospitals being sued if somebody makes the wrong choice? I think it will be always a doctor making these decisions and AI is just another tool and there will be some exceptions, some cases where it, it just may not see that particular scenario. So doctor will be always there, but we'll have better tools, which will give more precise answers. All right. Thank you so much. That is uh, Piotr Slomka, Director of Innovation in Imaging at Cedars-Sinai. Have you noticed that there are fewer limousines on the roads and freeways? I I noticed this because I have nothing better to do. Right. You, you are <laughs> you know, looking but... for the limos. <laughs> Yeah, I'm looking for the limos. You know, those were the the symbol and style of or a uh, symbol of status and style. That was one of the games I used to play myself. I'd see a stretch limo pull alongside me and like wonder who's in there. Is it somebody I like? Of course. Or, or is it uh, which rock star? Uh, the stretch limo industry has suffered in the past decade or so as people are opting now for Uber, Lyft, and and chauffeured vans. But not every limo company has fallen on hard times. Kevin Illingworth is the owner of Classic Worldwide Transportation in Orange. And by the way, Classic is spelled with an I-Q-U-E. Classique. Classique. And uh, he has managed to weather his business through the past 30 years plus. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. So so do you pronounce it classic or classique? It's classique. Ah, there you go. <laughs> that's, that's that's very classique. classique. <laughs> so um, what is the issue? Why are we seeing fewer stretch limos these days? Is it is it uh, economy or is it manufacturing? What is it? You know, personally, we still have quite a bit of work with limos, obviously, because we have one of the suppliers for Make-A-Wish Foundation. So we do a lot of that. And all of those kids really kind of stress for the little bit of having the traditional limo style still. So we still have those cars available. Um, obviously, we have a lot of accounts with um, some funeral homes. So obviously, that's traditional still there. Um, but I think really what it comes down to is that, um, you know, we the limo industry has endured a lot of hurdles, right? Like we had 9-11 in 2001. We had, you know, the market crash in 2008. And then obviously we had COVID 2020, right? Well, in the COVID 2020 is where it really kind of stressed out the limo industry as far as now you have all the suppliers, people that manufactured the vehicles for us, they didn't make it, right? You had like Tiffany and you had, you know, Gretsch, you had some different other companies that had to reinvent themselves. If they didn't go away, they reinvented themselves and they weren't making limos anymore. So you mean they by reinventing themselves, they're doing what, like big uh, luxury SUVs, that type of thing? Right, like, doing some SUVs or they went into like to the motor coach business. Like they went into like making more of their motor coaches or they started getting into the motorhome business. I know like Gretsch, um, they had to reinvent themselves because they were really a big lot of suppliers for as far as our 38 or 27 mini coaches, you know, the executive style mini coaches, the luxury, you know, plush ones. Um, they kind of had to diversify also because they couldn't get equipment. So they actually got into building um, motorhome sprinters. And what goes into making a stretch limo? I know when I've seen a really super long stretch limo, I always imagine to myself, you know what, there are three cars in that one car right there. How do they make a stretch limo? Obviously, they don't take a car and stretch it out. you got to add stuff to the car. Where do you get that stuff from and how do you put it together? 
Right, suppliers issue, right? So basically what they're doing, they're cutting the, like say on our what traditional limo for us would be our um, MKT, right? Our Ford Lincoln MKT. So that would basically cut, then they just stretch it out to make it like a 120. So basically it went from a, basically your mom car, six passenger to 11 passenger stretch couch style. Yeah. So you're talking about the supply issues too. uh, uh, your resources kind of drying up for the companies that supply the, uh, you know, the the supplies you need to make these limos. But are there any other types of of roadblocks that you're running into, like regulatory issues, uh, monitoring limos and their safety and that kind of stuff? Uh, Does that play a role in it, too? Absolutely, because obviously now you still have QVM, right? Your quality vehicle maintenance, which obviously is required by the manufacturers that actually were able to make the the few manufacturers that are able to make the the limos that were QVM certified, which basically went through a, um, I'd say, what you call it, a, a crash test, right? So that kind of put a damper on things because now there's no one out there willing to say, okay, now we have a vehicle and with this whole new thing with electric being a demand coming up, I don't know how they're ever going to fulfill that one. Yeah, I I, I was just about to ask you about that. Are there electric limos? No. Well, I mean, personally, Classic just picked up one. We've got a Rivian, right? So that's a Rivian SUV, which obviously we're going to put on the road, you know, and find out how that's going to work for us. Um, But we're we're having to fill that need in California, right? Because obviously we've got that demands being asked for. So, yeah, the, another thing is the updating on the technology and the look. So if you're having an issue uh, getting new limousines built to keep up with modern times, then how do you handle the aging fleet? What happens to all of those and what does that do to your business? You know, that's that's a great question. I mean, obviously, our vehicles, I mean, luckily, we just purchased vehicles just before the pandemic. So we have some of the newer limos that are still that were manufactured just before everything kind of got shut down. So we're having to, you know, really stay on top of maintenance. And obviously, I guess when it gets to that point, I mean, do you buy a new motor? Do you I mean, what do you do? I mean, we really don't know really what's going to happen. I mean, we've, that's a question that we've asked, and obviously we have, you know, our limousine shows that we go to twice a year, you know, in Vegas and um, in the East Coast, and really no one has an answer because none of the manufacturers have come up with a body style that we can actually stretch yet. Uh, one last question. Do you, what do you feel about, maybe there's an idea among a certain generation that looks at stretch limos as old, it's a thing of the past, so they opt for, you know, the these luxury SUVs, uh, et cetera. Uh, do you Absolutely. see that as an issue, or, or, and if that is the case, will everything that's old become new again, and then another generation comes along and like, hey, those stretch limos they had back in the decadent seventies, we want those. Well, you know, it's funny to say that because I think you know the limo is basically when you say limo, everyone kind of relates to that stretch vehicle, and now when we say limo, it's a term from our industry that it's a chauffeured professional chauffeured transportation. So we have, you know, our or based on our Escalades, we'll have our high-end SUVs, we'll have, you know, our limo sprinters, we'll have our executive sprinters, um, we have our mini coaches, we have motor coaches. So we really pushed to, we, I see a lot of that industry, um, I'm really, I mean, really, it's really strong right now. I hate to say it, but, you know, I was really scared for the first time in 33 years. I mean, I was freaking out because I didn't know what my next move was going to be, obviously, after getting through the first two transitions in my career. And then this one just got to the point where I was just like, oh my gosh, 
you know? So um, I really think that going forward, it's gonna be about customer service. It's gonna be about professional chauffeur transportation and how, how well you perform for your clients. And I think that, you know, honestly, even if it got to the point where you got into this, you know, what they say, AI, right? Where the cars are going to drive themselves. I still think there's a that that fair amount of client base out there that's going to want someone to be in the vehicle to basically carry your luggage, get you, open your door for you. I mean, that's what right. real important luxury transportation is. Well, until they make the robots. Yeah. And then you got that. Uh, listen, oh th- thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Kevin Illingworth, the uh, owner of Classique Worldwide Transportation in Orange. That's going to do it for In-Depth today. Uh, Alex Ramon, thank you so much for, I think Charles is returning soon at some point, I, I believe this week. Uh, so he will be back. But Elsa, yes. doing, uh, you're doing a great job. Thank you so oh, much. Thank you. Happy Making the show here. easy. And uh, we will do it again tomorrow at 1 p.m.